Hello, Lewis fans, and welcome to the Mere C.S. Lewis podcast. My name is Thornton. And my name is Andrew, and we are two brothers who enjoy C.S. Lewis and want to take themselves and others on a journey through his writings. Yeah, so this episode we are going to talk about the essay, Why I'm Not a Pacifist, uh, by C.S. Lewis. But before we get into that, I wanted to share you share with you, Andrew, something I learned about C.S. Lewis, or the, I guess the C.S. Lewis universe. Uh, let's hear it. Yeah, so recently I bought a book of C.S. Lewis poetry, mm. and as I've been reading through it, I discovered there's a poem called The Future of Forestry. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and what was, I thought, well, it's, it's a unique title, but what th- was interesting to me is that is, there's a band, or I guess a, uh, a musician, who his his artist name is called The Future of Forestry, and it's taken from that C.S. Lewis poem. Huh. Yeah, so uh, I didn't realize uh, that, because I'd heard of the, the musician before, but I didn't know there was a C.S. Lewis reference. I, yeah, I I didn't know that, that C.S. Lewis died, or dove into poems. That's actually... Oh, right. yeah, he, he originally wanted to be a poet. Right. Uh, and he... Uh, but he did not find much success, so um, he sort of, I guess, sort of shifted to, or he became a Christian and then uh, found that he could express his thoughts and ideas in, in better in other forms. Yeah, I mean, he, he mentions poetry, specifically like Greek poetry, mm-hmm. in his the, the essay we talked about last time, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, yeah, I've just been focusing on baseball. <laughs> yeah, spring training started. Yeah. College baseball started. Mm-hmm. I'm living my best life. Arkansas Razorbacks are number one. I know you're doing, uh, I bet you're feeling pretty good about that. Woo pig suey. Well, Andrew, would you like to go ahead and start us off with the background slash context of, of the essay? Let's dive in. Uh, yes, so this essay was a talk given to an Oxford pacifist society at some point in roughly 1940. Yeah, we're we're lucky that we even have this speech slash essay, uh, because the the original is lost to history. Lewis gave a copy of the speech to George Sayer, who was a poop a pupil of his, uh, and a friend, and George Sayer then gave it to Walter Hooper later, who was Lewis's literary executor. Yeah, and as we've mentioned in other episodes, you know this one was also written during the time of Britain, uh, during World War Two. Um, as that raged on and the Germans' air force was just constantly bombing Britain. Um, so that kind of sets the stage for this essay. Yeah, and yeah, it was around this same time that Lewis gave this speech that he was doing the, the, the talks for mere Christianity mm-hmm. and also had uh, just published the, the Problem of Pain. So okay, we'll go ahead and move into the overview of the text. So in the first paragraph, Lewis states the, the question at hand, quote, The question is whether to serve in the wars at the command of the civil society to which we belong is a wicked action or an action morally indifferent or an action morally obligatory. In asking how to decide this question, we are raising a much more general question. How do we decide what is good or evil? Lewis uh, then gives his definition of conscience. Uh, he kind of goes back to, you know, your philosophy 101 class, you know, mm-hmm. referring to that faculty that, that people appeal to when avoiding war. He says that, that conscience means that the whole person is engaged in a particular subject matter. Yeah. He says that there are still two different meanings to the definition. 
Uh, first, conscience can mean the in the first sense the pressure. A uh, quote, the pressure a man feels upon his will to do what he thinks is right. End quote. Or the second meaning, he says, quote, his judgment as to what the content of right and wrong are. End quote. Yeah, Lewis says in in the first sense one must always obey it. Um, that first sense being, you know, the the pressure a man feels upon his will to do what he thinks is right. Uh, but the second sense, one can change their conscience through reason. You know, for, for reason to function, it needs these three things. First, facts. Uh, and those are supplied either by experience or by authority. Yeah. Second, uh, it needs the intuition to perceive the self-evident truth. So basically like a platitude that um, right is good or, or love is better than hate. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the, the third thing that reason needs is to arrange the facts or intuitions in a way to pro- to produce a self-evident truth. It's it's kind of interesting. He's he's providing almost like a scientific method mm-hmm. in in regards to you know moral objective morality. Yeah, which uh, that this was one of my big takeaways from the essay that this I guess recipe, if you will, for reasoning like. You, for facts, you either have experience or authority, and then reasoning needs, uh, yeah, it needs those things. It needs intuitions, and it needs to arrange it in a in a proper way. Yeah. So that that breakdown that he gave is is and will be for me uh, immensely valuable. Oh yeah, and and we'll get into that a little bit later. But I I thought that that was really really fascinating. Yeah. Um, but he goes on to say that, that a correction in reasoning is a correction in the first or third element. The, um, so if someone lacks in the intuition to perceive a self-evident truth, then the argument is at an end. Relying on experts and authority to reach conclusions in lieu of reasoning can also prove wise, um, says C.S. Lewis. Which I think that that word self-evident is going to be very crucial as we kind of dissect this essay. Yeah, that that certainly is a very yeah that yeah a lot hangs on that self evident phrase or wording. Yeah, Lewis uh, then moves on in the essay to say that this overview of reasoning we just went through we can find in the conscience too. Uh, the, the difference, though, when it comes to moral reasoning, is that our passions can corrupt our reasoning much more than when it comes to non moral issues. So. With moral reasoning, the value of authority is much more useful. Um, yeah, is much more useful. Yeah, and he says that, that moral intuitions, such as you know choosing love over hate or happiness over misery, uh, and that they are unarguable. Uh, many people claim moral judgments as unarguable intuitions, but they're really just consequences or applications of intuitions, and, and thus you know should be open to discussion. Yeah. So Lewis gives us our first canon for moral decisions. He says, quote, Conscience in the A sense, or the first sense, the thing that moves us to do right has absolute authority. But conscience in the second sense, our, our judgment as to what is right, is a mixture of inarguable intuitions and highly arguable processes of reasoning or of submission to authority. And nothing is to be treated as an intuition unless it is such that no good man has ever dreamed of doubting. End quote. Yeah, and he goes on to say that, that you can't argue with someone who says that they have the intuition that, you know, 
killing all or all all killing of human beings in all circumstances is absolute evil. All you can say is that you think they're mistaking an opinion or a passion for an intuition, or that all the rest of the human race disagrees. Yeah. To help guard against holding an untenable moral intuition, Lewis gives us a, a moral reasoning quality check, if you will. Uh, he says basically that if the facts are little disputed, the intuition unmistakably an intuition, the reasoning connecting the facts to the judgment are, is strong, uh, and if one is in accordance with authority, or at least not in disagreement, he says. And lastly, you, you don't have reason to think a passion is swaying you, then you can feel pretty confident in, in your moral judgment. Yeah, and he turns to tackle the, the pacifist judgment head-on, um, and he, he states their position as, It is immoral to obey when the civil society of which I am a member commands me to serve in the wars. Yeah, Lewis says that everyone can agree that war is horrible. And yeah, I don't think anyone disputes that you you want war or that right. war is like nice and fluffy. Yeah, I don't think he wrote this this to be pro-war. The pacifists go further than that, though, to say that war always does more harm than good. And Lewis, sa Lewis says this pacifist position is, is speculative and that war is doing no good hardly ranks as a historical opinion. And as regards the, the moral intuition that love is better than hate and helping is better than harming, Lewis says for intuition to drive action, the intuition must have limits. Uh, for example, you, you can't do good to everyone. It has to be done to a specific person or group. You know, obligations involve one so that the helping one may mean harming another. Yeah, Lewis admits, though, that there are other pacifist stopping points, though. First, uh, a pacifist could say that violence is lawful only if it stops short of killing. Or, secondly, killing of individuals is indeed lawful, but the mass killing of war is not. And regarding the first, Lewis says that while capital punishment might, might not be certainly right, it is not certainly wrong. It might be the only way to effectively restrain someone. Uh, in responding to the second opinion, he says, it, it, it is certain that a whole nation cannot be prevented from taking what it wants except by war. And that I think that is, is a really good point. And I, I know in our, our state of Virginia, they, they just passed, uh, or sorry, they passed a law to eliminate the death penalty. Right. And I, I think that... In a lot of ways, that's good, but I think this point that you just read that uh, he's talking about war, but how war or killing might be the only way to effectively restrain someone. Right. I think that is a point that usually gets lost in right. in that in like the death penalty argument. Because um, yes, I, I I think yes, there's just some people that just will not stop. Right. Uh, as long as they have a breath to draw. So. Yeah, and and I think. And maybe this is a, a, a content for later, but that, yeah. that we have... In America, we view these as rights, right? Like you have the right to life, mm -hmm. right? Right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And in, in some of these cases, you can forfeit your right. You know, like the fact that a murderer gets put away for life means he forfeited the right to liberty. And he forfeited the right to pursue happiness. So I guess by extension, he would have forfeited the right to life. Maybe that one's the, a little further down, like, 
not as many people, or it's harder to forfeit that when not as many people do. But it, I don't think it's it's logically inconsistent. Yeah, yeah. I, I just yeah to, to avoid going down too deep of a political rabbit hole. Uh, I just yeah we'll continue on with uh, with the essay. Yeah, so yeah, Lewis uh, continues on and also says that the, the doctrine that war is always a greater evil implies a, a materialist ethic. He says that he believes a suppression of a, quote, higher religion by a lower or higher secular culture by a lower, a much greater evil, end quote, than death and pain. Yeah, and another pacifist attempt, he says, is more political and calculating. Well, not the greatest evil, it is a great one and worthy of removal. So the more pacifists there are, the better the deterrent. Yeah, Lewis responds to this thought saying that only liberal societies <laughs> tolerate pacifists. So if pacifism reaches a critical mass, then you hand the state over to its totalitarian neighbors, thus an end to pacifists. I think it's kind of funny that he, he shows the logical end like as long as we live in an imperfect world where mm -hmm. where humans want to conquer, mm -hmm. pacifism is ends up being self defeating, mm -hmm. which is what, what what he's laying out there. Um, but the idea rests on the assumption that the great permanent miseries in human life, or that imperfect world we're talking about, must be curable if we want to find the right cure. So Lewis believes that that we can do nothing to eliminate suffering. The best results are obtained by working toward limited object objectives like eliminating the slave trade or eliminating tuberculosis. Yeah, Lewis thus concludes that he doesn't see any connection between the principle of benevolence and the conclusion to disobey a lawful authority to become a soldier. He turns to, to authority, and to make a long story short, he says that you have the whole of authority against you too. Yeah, he says that... A disregard for authority may, quote, spring from the belief that human history is a simple unilinear movement from worse to better, end quote. Lewis simply says he does not share this basic assumption, this recency bias. Yeah, then he, the, he tackles the, the Christian pacifist whose case rests on the injunction to, quote, turn the other cheek. He says that there are three ways to interpret that verse. First, to, you can take that verse literally and apply it in all cases. He says if you do this, though, you must apply the same approach and interpretation to the, the rest of the Bible. Second, to, to view, you can view that teaching to turn the other cheek as, as a hyperbole to, to prove a point. Uh, and third, you can interpret it, uh, which this is the tact or the way that Lewis does, is to say that that verse should be taken literally but with an understanding that there are obvious exceptional cases. Yeah, he posits that, that insofar as the only relevant factors in the case are an injury to me by my neighbor and a desire on my part or retaliate, then I hold that Christianity commands the absolute mortification of that desire. Outside that scenario, other motives beyond egotistic retaliation influence action. Yeah. Lastly, Lewis says to be a pacifist is also to be influenced by the passion for comfort. Beyond some public disapproval, a pacifist has a much better life than that of a soldier. Lewis says the life of a soldier threatens every temporal evil, uh, while the life of a pacifist provides 
approval from a minority and the comforts of a of a normal life. And then he concludes the speech or essay and says this. This then is why I am not a pacifist. If I tried to become one, I should find a very doubtful factual basis, an obscure train of reasoning, a weight of authority both human and divine against me, and strong grounds for suspecting that my wishes had directed my decision. As I've said, moral decisions do not admit of mathematical certainty. It may be, after all, that pacifism is right, but it seems to me very long odds. Longer odds than I would care to take, with the voice of almost all humanity against me. And I, I can, as we kind of move into thoughts and analysis, um, I kind of think that that argument is one we've kind of lost, mm-hmm. at least in American society, is the idea that like human history has something to say about, you know, um, how we should see things, right? Like, I guess the church does this pretty well. We, we kind of reference like, well, how did the early church do it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how, did, how, have, how has the church done this over millennia? Mm-hmm. Um, and just because it's old doesn't mean it's outdated. Yeah, is yeah, I, yeah, I think, yeah, like Lewis says, Lewis calls it chronological snobbery, and I, yeah. th- I think psychologists <laughs> call it recency bias. Right. Um, and yeah, so there, some people think that, um, yeah, just because it's new or it's better, right. which yeah, in, in our world that can certainly be the case for technology. Yeah. And yeah, the technology here in 2021 is certainly more sophisticated and uh, advanced than the 1940s or 50s but i think there is there's not a clear connection or a undeniable connection between i guess the advance of technology mm-hmm. and and morals or um i guess approach approaches to living right um so i guess if anything, you could say that in the past they had a lot more to deal with. So, uh, whether it was, uh, I would say in terms of suffering, right? Uh, so the way they approached life, I think, sh- should at least be given equal, if not greater, weight to what they thought was valuable and stuff, since they had more suffering to deal with. Yeah, and I think, and to kind of go back to that term, self-evident, one 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 thing that, that I find at the very least interesting is sometimes things become less and less self-evident the more you look at them, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, if something is self-evident, the worst thing you could do is continuously analyze it, trying to find cracks in it. Um, you're saying if something is self-evident, the worst thing you can do is to continuously continuously... analyze it. Because Mm -hmm. I think we, we find ourselves, we or at least, what I find is that we trick ourselves into thinking it's no longer self-evident, right? Like we found the crack, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, it was self-evident, but, but through over analyzing, through over analyzing, right. It, it, you, you, you accidentally let a, a passion slip in mm-hmm. or an arrogance slip in mm-hmm. and, and you fool yourself into thinking it's no longer self-evident. Yeah. Yep, I think yeah, self-awareness and and how you think or feel or your biases right. about something is is crucial to know or be aware of, so that when you're yeah reasoning about something, you are yeah you know yeah how it could sway your thoughts right. And and I know yeah, you're talking about how 
a lot of people think something self-evident that isn't. Right. And Lewis even says in the essay at one point that uh, people probably don't analyze, like they they don't they don't probably analyze ten percent of some of the right, things they believe. Right. They just sort of like accept them for one reason or another and then right. move on. They don't they don't look at the reasoning behind it. Right. Um, so there's probably a lot of things that, yeah, if you make sense uh, from a from a certain point of view, but mm-hmm. you don't. If you follow the reasoning that led to it, right, you could find a couple of different uh, ways or reasons not to believe it. And and he definitely. He, I mean, just to reiterate, he says that that authority and believing that authority is a good thing. Mm-hmm. That. We shouldn't buck every authority or even most authority. Yeah, it, yeah. He, he was saying yeah, the the I guess value of authority is that. Well, I don't think he spells it out particularly in this essay, but I think uh, other than when he was saying with moral reasoning, authority helps you sort of avoid uh, letting passions take over. Um, so I think that yeah, that is one I guess value to authority, I, and I'm sure there's others, but he doesn't specified him here in the essay right and i guess i also just before we just get too too much deeper i also just want to reiterate that again like lewis says that war is horrible i think right, right. out of anyone uh, i guess who is listening right he probably experienced more in world war one in the trenches oh yeah um and then i guess any of like i said any of us that can imagine so i think like he is well positioned to say that yes, war is horrible, but there's still an obligation. Right. If if that is what, yeah, the state requires. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I don't want I guess anyone to think that yeah he is like a war hawk. Right. Or that he's he's asking or thinking that we need to war is the solution to everything. Right. He he, he is just, he drew at the very beginning of the essay and then here at the very end, um, he drew he he I guess it. Put out the question like here mm-hmm. is what he is talking about when he's talking about pacifism and right. uh, and then goes from there. So I thought that was, I think that's crucial to this essay is just not reading too much into it, but just actually following the mm-hmm. the logic that he is putting forth. Right, and I also think what's interesting is the idea of being a pacifist when Hitler's knocking on your door. Mm-hmm. Right, like essentially, if if you're not if if you are personally a pacifist, to me, then I'm, I, I find that to be a little bit more palatable. But if you're preaching pacifism and like preaching that all should be pacifist, that seems to me just morally bankrupt when you have Hitler. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're just handing Hitler the keys to the earth, mm-hmm. right? If, if, if you know you have that leader... You know, going to just ravage the planet, and and you're preaching we should all just let him, mm-hmm. you know, do nothing, can't fight him, can't end him. He's playing with a whole new deck of cards mm-hmm. that that we don't get to play with. Um, it's uh, yeah, I, I I think when you especially view it in that light, it makes it really difficult to to see why someone could be a pacifist. Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. World War Two in in. It was like it had all the the, the things that make, I guess, war justified. Mm-hmm. Um, it had yeah, just fighting for I guess human rights and 
fighting to, I guess, end a dictatorship. And, right. Um, and a few, I know there, it's a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot of other things that led to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, thinking, yeah, when you put it in those terms, yeah, it seems uh, inexcusable. Right. Um, and, and when you were saying that when someone's being a pacifist to you, you're just talking about just philosophically uh, in just like a one-on-one conversation. Right. Or like um, if if someone was like, you know what, like I, I cannot personally pick up a gun and kill someone. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have some questions, mm-hmm. but I would still, I would get it. Right, and I think that moves to that first idea of conscience of like, it has total authority. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of what Lewis is talking about. But I think there's a difference between having that personal held belief and having the making that like a policy. Right, making that a an objective moral reality for all people to follow. Yeah, I think those are two two different things. But again, I, and. And Lewis does mention this, but I, I wonder how pacifism works in the face of defending those you love. Like if someone walks into your house and wants your baby, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Yeah. Like at what, at what length would you maintain pacifism to protect your baby? Yeah. 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 Those are yeah good, big ethical questions. Right. Um, and I know, and I'm really glad he took sort of he took a, a Christian bent of sorts, and yeah. he talked about yeah the, the famous injunction by Jesus to say turn the other cheek and right and yeah I, in my mind I, yeah or I've always thought of uh, it's either like literal or it's like hyperbole right and he seems to find like a middle way where right. it, it's literal but there are obvious exceptions yeah uh, so so I don't know I guess it. It'd be interesting to explore that thought more, but I know that was um, something that I found helpful to think about because he talks about like there in, in another part of the essay he talks about like there's like all things being equal that that is the proper thing to do, but when you have other obligations on you, right? So like when you have a, a child, like they are the child is depending on you to protect them, right? So like yes. Like so, as as the parent or the guardian, like you are obligated to protecting them, so that that sort of enters into the equation of of that verse, right? Um, so yeah, and I think also taking that verse and and applying it holistically, mm-hmm. I think throws out a lot of other verses, mm-hmm. right? There's an example where. Where Jesus, he sends out his disciples the first time and he says, hey, go to all these different cities, um, take your, uh, don't take a coat don't, or an extra coat, don't take a sword, don't take money, don't take anything, mm-hmm. and then come back. But then he sends them out a second time later. He says, hey guys, like I'm about to leave you, so from now on you're going to need a sword. Hmm. Right? And, and he, you know, makes it like a, hey, this is going to be a fight, Right? But the idea, I think the principle Jesus is pushing when he says, turn the other cheek, is that, you know, or, or and coupled with that, if someone wants your cloak, give them your tunic as well, right? Give, mm-hmm. give them double, right? Is that we should hold earthly possessions with such an open hand 
that if someone wanted to take them from you, you would actually, your heart, instead of turning to vengeance or retribution or retaliation, mm -hmm. would actually turn to generosity. Mm -hmm. um, and when someone strikes you in the face, um, instead of turning again to those things, you would turn to mercy or compassion. Mm -hmm. um, which those things are actually the op you would be doing the opposite if you let someone hurt your child or someone weaker than you or you know um, if, if you if you stood by and let evil happen um, then you would actually be doing the opposite of the principles Jesus is you know proclaiming yeah and yeah Lewis says in this essay to your to your point that yeah you you do less evil as long as long as I guess you're or do less suffer or uh, cause less suffering or less misery as long as that like I guess for lack of a better term like reaches your goals or reach, right. or reach or I guess is an effective uh, he he talks about an effective restraint right um so yeah like yeah you you yeah it's a balance of, of justice and mercy right which is always a tough tough balance. Yeah, and I, I think again, yeah, I don't think Lewis is, is a war hawk here. No. And and I and I know today, compared to I guess nineteen forty, there the the nation has a lot more tools at its disposal right. by which to to I guess get get at its aims. Right. Um so and I don't know, I, I guess also I would be interested in Lewis's thoughts on authority, I guess post i guess 1950s is yeah he died in 1963 right and i guess that was around that time that yeah i know america went to vietnam and so mm -hmm. i think from there a lot of people started to doubt authority yeah a so, lot of disillusionment a lot of disillusionment so it'd be interesting to to see if lewis would update his his thoughts on authority or not yeah. um or because i know a lot of people i think a lot of people are fine with authority it's just when authority is corrupted yeah um and start to mislead people or be or yeah or corrupt that they start to fight against it so it's like okay when authority is corrupted like how how do they figure how does it figure into the equation yeah and i think that's a really really interesting point because you know after vietnam after watergate mm -hmm. you know and then now i mean it seems like any authority, any institution, yeah. any institution, is, you know, speculated by somebody, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's interesting even in this book, but yeah. there was one point, one thing I think Lewis would either chuckle at or be heartbroken about. Yeah, is this this quote right here is the the man who just feels that that total abstinence from drink or marriage is obligatory is to be treated like the man who just feels sure that, that Henry VIII is not by Shakespeare or that vaccinations does or does no good. Yeah, it's kind of funny yeah, with you know with things going on in twenty twenty one that uh, that line still speaks um, well <laughs> or is still applicable today or relevant. <laughs> yeah, it's just I think and and for and at some level for good reason but Americans, and maybe across the world, but I can really only speak for Americans, we just don't trust authority that is inconvenient. Mm -hmm. 
you know, if it's a, um, you know, like, like half the country's like, you know, we don't trust the media and the half, the other half of the country is how do you not trust journalists, mm -hmm. you know? And then, you know, you flip flop and it's, yeah. it's wild that how that, how that's shifted in the last, I guess, 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. What are, uh, what are some other takeaways from the essay for you? Yeah, I think he, one of the big takeaways that I think I'm going to try and, and implement in my everyday life is slowing down to see, see where the intuition is or mm. essentially the self-evident truth. Yeah. And then once I can kind of boil it down to that, then start to do that self-reflection work of, well, okay, where are my biases? Where are my passions? Where, where are my fears? Which I guess would probably be encompassed in passion. Mm -hmm. Um, and then what do I do with this now? Like, how, how can I logically or consistently organize this information? Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah, his breakdown and overview of reasoning, it was so succinct and concise and yeah. digestible that I was like, wow, this is so helpful, like you said, for me to just use in my daily life of like, okay, what... What are the facts, and do I get those from experience or authority? Right. And then once I have the facts, like what, yeah, what are sort of the intuitions or like the the basic self evident truths, and mm -hmm. how how are they arranged, and and are those connections mm -hmm. legitimate or uh, wise or whatever? And then once I have that, then like I said, go into the okay, like you, exactly like I said, the passions, biases, what what is sort of influencing that, and then like okay, what 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 do I guess other people say or like what does authority say or like how does that jive with I guess the rest of the world right uh, and then yeah I, I think yeah once you if you go through that process it is very uh, yeah you have a very robust I think point of view yeah. on anything yeah and then at the same level outside of what should be self evident be open to being wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, the only thing that, that Lewis says you should kind of hold sacred is whatever self-evident and I guess the divine authority mm -hmm. would be the two, you know, you know, things you can't budge on, essentially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Divine authority. And I guess in Lewis's view, divine authority and self-evident truth are, I guess, basically the same. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, but yeah. But yeah, those two things, yeah, you just need to like hold fast to and and i guess yeah he was he mentioned like yes if someone just truly believes that they do not want to do harm mm -hmm. uh then you just i guess you shouldn't force them to right and i guess that that is the spirit of conscientious objector right but yeah if you're i guess coming at it from another angle like you're reasoning about it or mm -hmm. or you're just wanting to do it because you're scared or Right. Then I guess that's a that's a different ball game. Right. Um, so, yeah. So just like you, the the reasoning, it was a bit takeaway for me. I um I did the his interpretation of I guess Jesus's injunction to turn the other cheek mm -hmm. was was useful for me. Um, I also I guess really liked, uh, I really liked his description of of the soldier life. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess I, I will go ahead and, and just quote this because I thought this was really uh, just fascinating or just a really good way to describe military service. Mm -hmm. He says he says that all 
quote, all that we fear from all the kinds of adversity is collected together in the life of a soldier on active service. Like sickness, it threatens pain and death. Like poverty, it threatens ill lodging, cold, heat, thirst, and hunger. Like slavery, it threatens toil, humiliation, injustice, and arbitrary rule. Like exile, it separates you from all you love. Like, like the galleys, it imprisons you at close quarters with uncongenial companions. It threatens every temporal evil. Every evil except dishonor and final perdition. End quote. But yeah, so I, so I was funny because I was like, oh yeah, I can remember a time I, I felt that or I experienced yeah. that. I, I don't think that it was, it was, it was not to, certainly not to the degree that it, it was an injustice or horrible or right. scarred me or, uh, but it's like, oh wow, yeah, like all of those, I think I experienced to some degree or other. Oh, for sure. Especially in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, and, and, and I guess military service is certainly better now than when he, he experiences. So I'm not trying to be a woe is me. It just, yeah. I just, I never thought about military service that way. Sure. Uh, but I was like, yeah, I can, um, I can, I guess, testify, like I said, to some degree at some point, um, I, I experienced all those things. Well, that, that's kind of my thoughts and takeaways from, from the book. I, I really enjoyed this essay. Um, and I think that this was a, a really interesting read in light of, of our current, at least Western philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, I think it was good. Yeah. Like for the reasons that we've already stated, uh, and it, it is applicable in, in some tangential ways, but I also, uh, think it's good for us to, uh, talk about and think about because we, well, we have not seen the end of war. Right. Yet. Right. Uh, so there will be another war, I guess there are wars throughout the world right now. But I'm, I guess we're thinking about America. Right. War, America will be at war again to some degree right. in the future. So um, thinking about this now when I guess the passions are not quite the same hmm. I, is is useful. Right. Um, but, well, listener, thank you for joining us on this leg of our, our journey. I know it's it's a little bit shorter than, than we normally do. Um but yeah, thank you for just joining us. We really enjoyed reading this this essay, and we hope that, that you have, can, and will enjoy reading it as well. Yeah, we will see you all later. If you want to connect with us, we are on Twitter at Mir C.S. Lewis. Thank you, and see you next time. <laughs>